0: Well, uh, segueing into another horror film. Um, I feel like I haven't mentioned my love enough for uh, Dario Argento on this podcast so far. Um, So I've got to mention Suspiria. What a sensory experience. Um, So the basic plot, even though it's arguable whether the plot for this film is even of importance. um, Jessica Harper from Phantom of the Paradise. She allegedly got the role in Suspiria from um, people seeing Phantom of the Paradise. Um, she plays Susie Bannon, who's um, an American who arrives in Germany to go to this uh, fancy um, ballet school. Um, But something uh, isn't quite right in this school, Um, there's evil that lurks in the walls when people start to be murdered. Um, It's kind of always kind of incorrectly labelled as a giallo, like I kind of get why it is, it's that kind of Italian genre of, you know, people being murdered uh, brutally and I don't want to say terrifically, but the kills in giallos, I mean, they're, they're cool to watch. I mean, there's a reason we watch them. Like, I'm not a psychopath for saying they're cool to see. It's, at least it's happening in a film and not in real life, you know. Um, or at least it's a good job Dario Argento is making these films instead of doing it in real life. i will get <laughs> onto a minute why I think his films are great. But um, yeah, Suspiria, is, it's the supernatural element. I kind of stopped it from being a giallo. Anyway, it has all the thrills of all the best giallos. Um, it's a sensory experience, first and foremost. The photography, the lighting in this film, it's unlike anything else I've ever seen. It's its a technical dream. Dario Gento basically invented the color red with this film, or at least reinvented it. It looks stunning. Um, and the score by Goblin, oh, let me tell you, what an experience, just the colors and the music is all you need. Like, it could just be a slideshow, I think, of the images. Um, the opening where susie's kind of gets from the airport and gets into the gets inside the taxi and it's pouring down with rain as goblin score is you know hinting and whispering about you know which and the the music rises and it's just so atmospheric and she watches someone running through the woods screaming and terrified and then the first murder and he's like this is going to be something um it is like a pure kind of expression i think there's there's a sense of like expressionism there, like a sort of new expressionism in the way the lighting is used here, kind of like the a natural kind of evolution of the expressionist film. Um, it is, I think still scary. I think it is quite a terrifying film. I think people argue, some people have seen people argue it's not because, you know, it's that kind of thriller kind of murderer thing going on. And people argue it's not about anything. And I kind of, even if it isn't about anything, does that matter when it looks this good when it's so sensory when it's such a sensory overload does it matter that it's the, when do films have to be about something you know mm-hmm. um kind of just deal with the with the terrific form and the images and the, and the feeling and, and it, it's a pure kind of feel movie sensory in a way that so few films are i also love the ending how she just wanders off we, we don't need a epilogue we don't need to wind down just it's over as soon as the uh kind of the the antagonist i guess if you want to call it that is, is defeated it is just I, I it's a film that i i hopefully i cannot wait to to project it in a, in a screening room that would be such a wonderful experience it's one of those films that i think I'm, I'm really annoyed i've never been able to see it on a big screen i've only ever seen it on my tv but i mean it even looks incredible on a, on a smaller screen um a lot of people know the remake i know a lot of people have seen the remake um and it's a I don't trust people who prefer the remake. It's just well, that's one of my things. I'm like, I, I don't, I don't trust you, because the remake is. I always think of Manny Faber's white elephant art versus termite art. I say when it comes to the Suspiria original and remake, and it's very much a case of the the remake feels like it's too scared to to remake Suspiria, mm-hmm. so it goes so out far its way too distance itself that it might as well not be Suspiria. There's no color in the in the remake. It was a stylistic choice to avoid color, which okay. When why are you remaking Suspiria? Because it it also brings the political elements of the Cold War and and Germany to the forefront and generational guilt and all that to the forefront, which is in the background of the original Suspiria. And the reason why the original Suspiria works so well is because it's in the background. Like it's there, it's there enough to be inferred, but it doesn't get in the way of the, you know, the, the feel of it, the atmosphere of the film. The remake puts it at the forefront because it's so desperate to be about something. It's this whole elevated horror trend Elevated, quote unquote, which just really annoys me because you have a bunch of people who aren't feel they then they they're too good for traditional like or classic horror films, so they have to elevate it and be about something, even though horror was always about something. Even though it doesn't have to be about anything, I'm tripping over words here. What I'm saying is because the remake of Suspiria wants to be a make a statement about something, it completely ignores why Suspiria works and. There's no colour to the to the remake. Um, it's 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 a film that I remember buying into the hype of the remake. I don't know why I'm spending so long talking about the remake when the original is so brilliant. I don't want to bring the, the remake down. I want to raise the original up. But if you if you haven't seen the original, but you've seen the remake, um, please see the original. Um, it's it's a pure it's it's a pure kind of horror. It's yeah, pure horror is probably the best way. Again, sensory. I keep saying that word, but it truly is one of the most purest expressions of that in terms of the, I've just never seen the atmosphere be created so well with the color red before and,
1: and the music of Goblin. It's, it's perfect. I absolutely love Suspiria. I'm really glad you've chosen yeah. it. Um, I'm, I'm glad that you've seen the Exorcist and i Suspiria because that ends the, yeah, <laughs> ends the trend. Um, The sequence I always remember in Suspiria, which is my favorite, is the sequence where it's um, Jessica Harper and her friends in the swimming pool. Yeah. That sequence, nothing happens. It's just atmosphere and it's just suspense, but it's genius, that sequence. It's so creepy. It's so unnerving. It's shot from a balcony above, so you feel like someone's watching them. You feel kind of voyeuristic because it's two girls in a swimming pool at night. You feel you shouldn't be there. It's such a good, unnerving little, creepy little sequence. I love that. The music by Goblin is probably my favorite part of all of it. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, completely. That it's it, it's kind of a little bit tubular bellsy at first where it has that kind of little lullaby kind of like diddle 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 thing. And then and it's got kind of the la la. Yeah. Like so it's kind of creepy with the lullaby. And then when you get to that really cool prog rock bit where the guitar just freaks out going, roo, 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 roo. It's, love it. I absolutely love yeah. that track. Um the whole that- thing is just like a heightened
0: fairy tale, I guess in yeah. those regards, with the music. It's just a heightened, terrifying fairy fairytale. Um, and, yeah, I think the thing about Dario Gento, like I was going to say, is that, like, you you watch his films and you think, it's a good job he's making films because there's something not quite right up there, I guess. <laughs> um, and, like, if he wasn't making films, he'd be on the streets doing things he shouldn't be doing. Uh, and uh, that means... We, we need, <laughs> horror needs these people back. Find these people, <laughs> get them to to make films that are just pure which then you can then you know infer things and employ and things from the background the, the my issue with the remake is solely that it's 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 so desperate to be about something that it ignores why the original was so brilliant in the first place um and the 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 score for the for the remake i i'm not a radiohead fan i have to admit that now i guess they're they're fine i haven't really delved into their catalogue i'm sorry not a radio fan heresy but what's the score for the remake what's going on you're not going to beat goblin why would you what what are you doing um (laughs) yeah i remember i I was buying into the hype of the remake a lot because i liked coming by your name decoder gino obviously directed it and i was like okay at least they're not hiring some horror guy to make it that was my i was i was optimistic about the remake because i thought they're not hiring a horror guy just to kind of recreate it because that that probably would have been worse if someone attempted to do a gento um because no one is a gento they can't you can't recreate what the original Scorsese did so i'm kind of glad they're going in a different direction but then i'm like it's so scared of remaking the text then what why are you bothering and then you get Jessica Harper to cameo in it this deal where you remake a film and then you go to the original star like "Yeah, yeah you remember that good film you were in 30 years ago do you want to do it again but not as good what's the deal um if you like the the remake that's fine cool just know that the original is a very different beast um it's a heightened terrifying fairy tale of color and expression and sensory and it's 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 wonderful and i can't wait to screen it um and also it's I feel like that kind of era of like Italian horror films, because they're all dubbed. One of my kind of big kind of fears of showing it to an audience is that it will just be rejected because of the kind of production qualities of it in terms of how, because I don't record sound on on set. So everything was kind of dubbed in whatever language, Um, which I guess kind of takes, a, not necessarily a while, but if you're unfamiliar with it, it is
1: quite maybe off putting, I think, for a lot of people. I, I think I think you're right. I think it could be off-putting, but I think it works really well because it makes the whole thing feel that more disconcerting and strange. Yeah. Everyone's mouth, are off-edge. Yeah. So it's like what's... Yeah. And I really like the fact that Alida Valley is in this film. Uh, Anna Schmidt from The Third Man <laughs> <laughs> is just like randomly <laughs> in a lot of European horror films and she's good here. Yeah. Um, there's the sequence where they all have to sleep in that really big sort of gymnasium room and they've got the red panelling or the red sort of canvas separating yeah. what's going on just that sequence is stunning. Yeah. I love that. And the light goes off and it's silhouetted is yeah, it's a mir- it's a minor miracle of a of a, of a film, the the lighting work going on here. It is, it is absolutely gorgeous. I need to see it again. I mean, like the last time I watched it was on like a laptop. <laughs> so like I need to I need to watch it properly. Um, but it's a stunning, miraculous little film. I really, really love it. I love the music, I love the color, I love Jessica Harper. It's great. It's a great film. Yeah.
0: Also, I i mean, I'm going to ruin everyone's day with this, but I i always sing um, Cecilia by um, Simon Garfunkel with Suspiria. So Suspiria <laughs> to the tune of Cecilia. That's going to be stuck in your head now, people. I, I apologise. But yeah, Suspiria, you're breaking my heart. <laughs> you're shaking my confidence. Um, that, that's a good, actually. That, no critic put that in the remake. They should have done that. Oh, well, I should have done that. Oh, well. That's a lost, that's a missed opportunity. If they remake it again, which they might do. We'll make a sequel. Suspiria 2. Electric Boogaloo, <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, Suspiria, terrific. If you like the remake, that's fine. Check out the original. It's a different beast entirely, which is a uh, very, in- it's an interesting comparison, I guess. Because there's, again, it's an hour shorter. That's, that's another reason why I prefer the
1: original. It's an hour shorter. Oh, there's that... But, there's that kill in the original where um you you don't notice the killer at first because the killer blends into what the room looks like and then the killer moves and you and it's just it, that's terrifying that bit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And the bit when the insects fall from the ceiling. Oh,
0: that is that is a really horrific sequence. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. If if you don't like insects, maybe avoid that bit because that <laughs> is oh that's that's a nightmare. Um sequence. But also check out Dario Argento's other filmography and the rest of it, uh, Phenomena is a film that I don't think is brought up enough. That is true, Jennifer Connelly, she can interact with insects, talking of insects. She can communicate with them. It's a real oddity of a film. There's a there's a chimpanzee in it and he fishes a knife out of a bin and then stabs <laughs> someone with it. And I'm thinking, they gave a knife to a chimpanzee? What, how did, how, did, how did they negotiate with that chimp to get the knife off them? How did they direct it? How did no one get injured? Why would you give a, a monkey a knife? <laughs> but they did. That, that was that was D- Dario Gento, and he's a genius. And also, he'll, one thing I love about him is he'll be filming the most horrific murder you've ever seen and then just kneel drop like Iron Maiden over the top of it, <laughs> which completely just takes the wind out of it. Be like, I, I can't not respect this. Like, it's, it's the craziest thing. And yet, i gotta got to respect it.
1: Oh, there's that bit in it where Jessica Harper's falling asleep. And just as she's falling asleep, her friend's like, Do you know anything about witches? And then, like, goes to the, dr- all that, I'd love all that. It's so sort of goofy, but very sincere at the same time. Yeah. Oh, I need to see it again. I need to see it again and watch it properly in a good quality version. Um, Hopefully, I'll be able to
0: screen it at some point for oh, Film City Society. If if we're allowed to use the lecture theatres, it's it's
1: going straight on. Man, cannot wait for next year now. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, dude, Suspiria, great. Me- when it comes to remakes, I mean, I, I think this is like, I, I was ashamed to say it, but I think this is like a nostalgia critic point, so don't hate me. But like, he oh, a stop clock is right twice a day, you know. Um, yeah. He once said, I think, just remake films that are bad. <laughs> it's like, yeah, <laughs> I kind of agree with that. Like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's fair enough. It's going to do a remake, do something that didn't work and try and make it work, like the best, my favourite remake ever is probably like Ocean's Eleven. No one remembers the Frank Sinatra one, you know. No, no. But yeah. the, the Soderbergh one's good. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah. Same with the thing you know, No one really talks about the Howard Hawks one But everyone loves a no. joke after one uh, Well there's Suspiria um, Now I've talked about The Exorcist I've talked about The Long Goodbye I've talked about Selene and Julie So I've got two movies left Now I'm going to go with my really predictable one It wouldn't be an episode without you talking about Michael Mann It kind of wouldn't be an episode without me talking about Stanley Kubrick In some way And in the 70s Kubrick released two movies one of which is A Clockwork Orange, which everyone knows is big, controversial. This British film that was, oh, it's, it's the British film of its time. It's political. It take, And I do love it. But over the years, the other British movie he made at the time, I think has really clearly established itself as the better film. And that movie is Barry Lyndon. Barry Lyndon is a stunning little film. If you haven't seen Barry Lyndon, check it out immediately. I promise you, even though it's like a three hour long period film, you will be hooked to every second. It's mesmerizing the quality of this movie. This is probably the most beautiful non-Technicolor color film I've ever seen. Um, I make an exception because, like, you can't beat the Red Shoes and you can't beat the River by Jean Renoir. You you just can't. They're they're perfect. I mean, Martin Scorsese describes those films as the most beautiful Technicolor films ever, and he's right. You can't beat them. Um, But this comes close. This very much comes close because he uses... It's all on location. He finds incredible buildings of the time, this Georgian architecture, which looks incredible. All the costuming for the film is absolutely magnificent. He hired the costume designer for the film, The Emigrants, which is a Swedish movie. And the work here is miraculous. I think the costume designer actually won an Oscar. It's one of the few Oscars the film got and fully deserved. Uh, John Olcott does the cinematography, same chap that worked on 2001. Uh, They shot the film with Zeiss lenses from NASA so that they could shoot in candlelight. These were lenses designed for low light conditions on the moon, and they had to use these in order to shoot scenes in candlelight so it looks authentic. Um, People haven't seen the movie. The story is about a young man called Redmond Barry, played by Ryan O'Neill, and the the real criticism that was made at the film at the time is that Ryan O'Neill isn't a very good actor, and he can't pull off the role. He can't pull off being an Irish rogue. and maybe there's a tiny bit of truth there i don't think ryan o'neill's quite laurence olivier but i think he works because the whole film is about a man that's really hard to read he can't quite see where he's coming from why he's making the decisions he does and i think that works quite well you know maybe an accident or not but i think it works well with the character so you follow rem barry as he tries to win the hand of a woman he's in love with who's his cousin it was the georgian times they did that kind of stuff back then um he fails to leonard rossiter who is really really funny here if you've seen like 70s sitcoms then the rosters in loads of them like rising damp and stuff and he's so funny here is this bumbling silly little pompous british army officer that ends up getting with this woman that barry wants to get with so redmond barry takes to the road he joins the army he ends up as a nobleman he's, he's in gambling dens and these these high up gambling stakes matches among the very rich people he becomes this lord he marries a very beautiful woman played by marissa ben, uh, berenson and then there's a bit of a, a fall arc after his spectacular rise. but You're not really in this film for the story. What you're in it for is this total immersion in a different time. I mean, it's hard to represent period films um, that well. Like most of the period films that you'll watch, would you be like a Jane Austen adaptation or something? There are some good ones there. I like Sense and Sensibility and I like Mansfield Park. But a lots of those films, they feel like the rhythm's all off kilter they feel like they want to be modern films but they're representing an older time and everything just feels a bit disjointed and strange like like the favorite where it's like what are you trying to do here I get that you, you you're doing the fisheye lens thing because it's different I get but like it's just kind of distracting I don't really get it just doesn't quite do it for me and I feel like you're trying to make a very modern movie about an old time and you're not quite getting it Kubrick gets it it's a slow painterly film. It's really, really, really slow. It's one of the slowest moving films you'll ever see, but it's spectacular. It takes a minute to get into it, but once you're in, it's like you're immersed in a sort of bath made of crushed up paintings. Like you just, you live and you breathe in this, this different time, this different age. He's resurrected 300 years ago and said, there you go, have it. And it works. It works so well. You're just, you're in. You're totally in from the, from the, you know, from the moment Reverend Barry takes to the road. This is an adaptation of a william Makepeace thackeray novel that no one had really read um the luck of barry lyndon which is like quite an obscure book but it makes for one of the great all-time movies um i think when this came out it was really misunderstood people at the time were like it's too long it's too slow it's boring steven spielberg described it as being um like going around an entire museum without stopping for lunch like that's he just said (laughs) It's it's too long. You, it, it's very good, but you, it's not it's not quite perfect because it's too it's too long. You don't quite get the fun aspects of maybe some of Kubrick's other movies. With the greatest respect, I think the time has proven those criticisms wrong. Um, every every second is is sumptuous as eating a meal. It's a gorgeous gorgeous experience. And towards the end, it becomes very tender and emotional. There's a series of uh, there's a the death of a child happens, and it's a really painstaking moment. And the film tells you what's going to happen. Like an hour before it does there's a, there's a bit of narration that just basically gives away the ending about an hour before it happens like, oh okay that's how it's going to end um okay but it just lets you in on it uh and it works it works so well there's a draw sequence near the end um between a younger man and an older man and in this sequence It's trying to represent the chivalry of its time being meaningless. One of the characters makes a very chivalrous act, and it gets him nowhere. It's the one good thing that he does, and it just gets him him nothing. This is a really devastating critique of the rules and institutions of a society that's long since dead. It's about how you can be a noble person, but it will get you nowhere. And really, the only way to get by is to kind of be a cad, to play the game, not to be noble, not to be good that if you get to this high point, if you get everything you want, it's going to make you miserable. It's going to leave you despondent. You're going to become violent. You're going to become addicted to gambling and to alcohol, and you're just going to end up despondent and alone. It's a bleak portrait of a society, but it's a very beautiful one. Oh, there's so much I could say about this. Um, the, the, the use of camera here, the steady cam tracking shots here of the battle sequence are unbelievable. This is some of the most beautiful filming you'll ever see. The slow zoom outs where you see Barry in these very beautiful locations, but he gets smaller and smaller and smaller as you zoom out and you see his dwarf by what's around him. He doesn't fit in. He can't, he's an alienated, isolated man. He doesn't belong to this world. He wants to, but he can't. Uh, There's a really funny boxing match in this film with Pat Roach, who's the guy that gets cut up in the propeller in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. (laughs) Um, That there's like a sort of argument that happens before this boxing match that that sort of uh, sparks it up. And it's... Genuinely one of the funniest sequences in any film. I think it, does, it isn't meant to be. It's just meant to be expository, but I find it hilarious. Um, this one man steals Barry's drink. Barry complains that he's, his tanker is full of grease. So a man takes it off him and starts drinking it. And he's so angry that he starts asking the people around him, how can I get at this man? How can I say things that will embarrass him? And a man next to him says, oh, that's Mr. Tool. He has a wife who is a washerwoman who bathes him. I and mean, It just cuts to Ryan O'Neill going, "Mr. Tool, are you going to wash your face with a cloth of your wife's making?" And it just honestly, it's one of the funniest. Like I've watched that with like groups of people; everyone laughs at that point. You can't not <laughs> laugh at it. It's really, really funny. And then you get the the fight. It's it's hard to do this film justice in a podcast medium because it's all about just the quality of the image. It's so beautiful. It's so mesmerizing. Michael Hordon's narration is like the voice of God. If you got to heaven and God was actually just Michael Horden narrating the events of the world, it would make perfect sense, given his, given his narration here. Um, Steven Burkoff, who plays the baddie in a lot of 80s films like Beverly Hills Cop and uh, um, Octopussy, turns up as a man trying to <laughs> get his way out of gambling debts and is very, very good and very funny here. This is a stunning movie. It's one of Kubrick's very best. For the longest time, it was my favorite Kubrick film until I watched the lead All I can say is just give it your time, give it your attention, dive into it, bathe in the world of it, just experience it and let it wash over you. And then when you get to the end, when you get to that devastating final title card, which might be one of my favorite quotes in the history of cinema, it will just destroy you. The final card, after you've just watched this epic tale of love and loss and gambling and self-destruction with some people going high, some people going low, a rise and fall, you get this final title card that just said, the persons in this story lived and quarrelled in the time of King George the Third, For better or worse, for richer or poorer, they are all equal now. And it destroys me. I love it. It makes me very emotional. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is a perfect movie. I love Barry Lyndon. Love it, love it, love it. Please watch it. I have to admit, I, I haven't seen it. Um,
0: so that's like on my pile of shame to to get watched. Um, it's one of those films that I just, I, I know about like kind of the perfections of it. And I just, I've, I've got to wait for the right opportunity. It's one of those where I feel like when it ha- when when the time comes, I'll I'll know when the time is ready to, to watch it. I also kind of worried about the um it's it's a it's a silly thing, but the aspect ratio is just one of those ones where I know Kubernetes was very particular and yet I I don't think any home release has the correct ratio. Which is just one of the things that I know it wouldn't bother like anyone I watched it with. But for me I'd spend the entire time being like, oh, that's not there'd be something off. I could always like rachel after Rage is one of those things that really bothers me um when it's not done correctly and especially kubrick he was such like a perfectionist with those sort of things i think it's it's bizarre that he, he his filmography is one that is
1: never kind of put right on home media yeah that is interesting i mean i have the kubrick correction blu-ray box set and like all i can say is i love it it's one of my favorites and i've never had a problem yeah. myself but i can understand right. why you might have it as like a little doubt because yeah it, it, that is a shame But um all i can say is i watch it and i love it i've just remembered there's a weird little detail in that film i hadn't thought to mention before kubrick's films are people complain about some of his like portrayals of like women and of course he was he was pretty terrible the way he treated a lot of women um particularly shirley duvall but this is like his most feminist film like marissa berenson is the character you love in this movie she's the one you root for over ryan o'neill's character she's the one you really want to see come clean come good have a good life and so that's a bit of an interesting one and the other one is that there is a portrayal of a gay couple here um set in the georgian time that is kind of touching and quite funny there's two army officers who are swimming naked together in a pool uh, and barry sort of sees them and starts stealing their stuff and they're just like this quite tender gay relationship you just hear them talking to each other it's like, oh, that's quite nice <laughs> so <laughs> some little details there barry yeah. linden it's it honestly it lives up to its reputation it's it's one of those experiences where when you watch it, you will never forget that first time you saw it. Miraculous, miraculous film. <laughs> There's a seduction scene in the movie, which is genuinely one of like, it's it's like low key sexy. You don't realize how kind of erotic it, it is until you've watched the film maybe a couple of times, but it's the sequence where Barry is staring across at Lady Lyndon across the table before he becomes Barry Lyndon when he's just Redmond Barry. And it's all about their eye contact. It's it, the entire thing, it's wordless you're just watching when they make eye contact and when they break it. And then eventually they maintain the eye contact and that's how, and it's like they're playing cards as they're doing it, but that's just one game. The other is this game of seduction. They're playing with each other. Are they going to keep eye contact with each other? And when they do it's game over and then they end up married quite soon after (laughs) gorgeous, gorgeous film, very moving. People say Kubrick wasn't um, an emotional director. And I've seen it like Roger Ebert's review of this. He's like, it's a cold masterpiece. It's this cold film. There's, there's lots of emotion here. The, the point is that the camera is detached from it all. You've got to read into the faces. You've got to really study what the actors are going for. The, my favorite image in the entire film is Marissa Berenson. Um, she's in a this very ornate bath and she's wearing this kind of uh, this robe as she's in this bath and she's being sort of washed by women around her. And she's just giving this dead-eyed stare near the camera, and you zoom out and you see this entire room. And it's you think, how did they film this? How did they begin to get this on film? It's like it's like a living painting. The whole movie is like a living painting. Just watch it and marvel and think, my God, they don't make films like that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> You've definitely sold it. I, that's another film I need to get on very quickly. <laughs> it's it's stunning. It's truly stunning, and it's it's a testament to like. This is why I love Kubrick, right? The man was an American. He grew up in New York. His New York heritage was very important to him. He used to read the New York Times every day, basically until he died. It was all about America, all about New York. In the 60s, he moves to Britain because he prefers it as a place to make films. I think a part of it was like tax reasons when he was making Lolita because it's cheaper. But he stayed for the rest of his life. And like, that's a testament to Britain and British cinema, yeah. I think, that Kubrick was like, yeah, I'm staying here. And he makes his <laughs> best films here, in my opinion. Yeah. All of 2001 shot in Britain. I'll call that. Full metal jacket
0: too, which is always quite interesting. <laughs>
1: that was shot in Norfolk. I live yeah, near where they math, shot right? it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like he uses Norfolk for Vietnam, which is just mad. But I, it's great. I love Norfolk. It's like it's my favorite place in Britain. It's where I live. I'm very lucky to live here. And yeah, I love seeing it represented as Vietnam. Because <laughs> you can't tell it's Norfolk. That's the great thing. Like you, you, you genuinely believe it's Vietnam. Yeah, it, it works so well. He uses, yeah. um like, the Becton Gasworks as, uh like, uh, the war-torn streets of this, like, Vietnamese city. And it's perfect. You wouldn't know. Genius. <laughs> yeah, Kubrick, Kubrick, like, ultimately, I think when you're talking about the all-time great directors in the history of cinema, mm-hmm. the two names, you just can't avoid talking about are Kubrick and Hitchcock. You yeah. can ignore everyone else. You can't ignore Kubrick and Hitchcock. <laughs> yeah. Right, Dom, what's your next pick?
0: So um, my last one is, it's kind of a Christmas film, I guess, well, controversial Christmas film. It's not a feel good film. In fact, it's probably one of the feel bad films from Australia. It's a uh, Waking Fright um, from Ted Kochef. Um It tells the story of um, a English teacher um, played by Gary Bond, who's terrific um, in Australia, who um, is going to go to visit family in Sydney. Um, but stops over in kind of the outback, in the Yabba, as they call it in the film. And he intends to stay for the night in like a hotel, but he kind of loses all his money. And this one night stretches into what feels like an eternity for him. Um, it's, it was described, I think, by Time Out. They said it's the closest a film has ever got to a primal scream. And that's so accurate. Uh, this is like hell on earth watching this film. It's one of the most despairing depressing watches i think ever it's a definite feel bad film though it's set at christmas um and I, I i would argue it's a good representation of christmas actually because it's about going to a place you necessarily don't want to go <laughs> hanging out with people that kind of annoy you after a, too long of a time with them you drink far too much you lose all your money and then you have to go back to your life at the end as if it didn't happen is there anything more christmasy than that I don't know. <laughs> But it is very much a guy hanging out in the outback with despicable people, just the worst company possible. And yet it's kind of riveting. It's so affecting. There's a, the infamous kind of scene is they go kind of kangaroo hunting and the film is spliced with actual footage of kangaroo hunting. So you see actual kangaroos get shot and slaughtered and it's horrific and incredibly, incredibly difficult to watch. It is hell on earth. it's incredibly uncomfortable i watched it with a group last christmas actually um and everyone was so rooted by it i was very kind of surprised by the reaction because people haven't stopped thinking about it it's a film that once you've seen it you won't stop thinking about it the way the desert is depicted here is incredible it opens with like a 360 like panning shot of the entire place and just there was just the train station in the middle of nowhere and you are instantly like this is like the nice part of of the place where he's, this is like the comfortable part of the film, and already it's just desolate and 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 horrible. And then he de- it's just a descent into kind of horror. It is, <laughs> I think I'm saying it's uncomfortable and despairing and feel bad, but it's a masterpiece at the same time. It's it's genuinely a film that the kind of the beauty of the film is that it can make you feel this way. Gary um, Bond is terrific in it. Um, he unfortunately died really young, but he's wonderful. Um, the scene when he's kind of wandering on his own through the outback, and he has to just find food, so he has to go hunting essentially. Um, and obviously, he's a school teacher; he's he's not accustomed to kind of the ways of the outback. Um, so when he's kind of just searching for food, it's this absolutely terrific montage where there's mirages and everything, and it it looks beautiful but horrible at the same time. It, it's, it's, it's weird, you don't want to spend any time here, but it's also, you can't leave the film. It, it, it's, it's the most despairing thing I've ever seen, um, but it's probably also my favorite Christmas film. Take that as you will. Um, but it is, it is a masterpiece. It's Again, I, my, I showed it to a bunch of friends and they were telling me they didn't stop thinking about it. My, my friend actually ordered a copy of it on like, DVD herself because you couldn't stop thinking about it, which I think is a great credit to the film um yeah it's i don't know what else to say it's 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 truly unlike anything else i've ever seen it was a film that i think was lost for the longest time it was mainly in 71 it's got it was released as Wake waking fright and then i think in the rest of the world it was released as outback and um it was lost forever and then someone found it in a shed Gosh. found a film reel of it and then it got restored thankfully because if this film was lost i i don't know um and it's a credit to holding on to film and, and archiving and restoring. Um, I don't know if people saw, but like a, a, the other week when in Brazil, the archive got, you know, was set on fire and 2000 film reels are now lost and no one knows what they are. And that's history, that's art and it's gone. Like it was never there. And that's just incredibly depressing. And I think Waking Fright, the fact that it was once lost and someone found it just randomly, you know, it, it's, it's devastating when, film goes and just is gone to time and if people wonder why people still collect physical media it's it's for those reasons because it can all just go like it, it is uh, you know on cellular it is just a material so it's important to kind of hold on to, to films while, while we still have them because they can go and it's devastating and wake and fright I think is is a great example of why that's important to hold on to because someone just had it in a shed which is crazy to think about absolutely that's mad uh, yeah but I'm glad they found it because it's so nihilistic but brilliant and a great depiction of desperation, like the desperation of of, of humans. And Donald Pleasence is in it. And my God, what a brilliant performance. There's a kind of great scene when they're just kind of discussing what they do and he's just like, have a drink mate, have a fight mate. There's nothing else out here. And that's kind of the through line of the film. It's it's nihilistic and despairing, but and a primal scream as Time Out said. Um, which is a perfect description. It's a, a masterpiece if I ever saw.
1: Is it as good as Crocodile Dundee?
0: <laughs> yeah, I would say. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Not as feel-good as Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> I, I really like Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> I, again, shamefully, I haven't seen it. I have heard of it because it was on BFI Player for the longest time. And I was like, yeah, I should check that out. But I never did. Um, but yeah, It's definitely one of those songs. I think you have to be in the right mood for it. Right, like it's not one of oh let's just whack this on this will be fun in
0: evening viewing i remember when i did show it to my friends it ended and there was just dead silence for like two minutes then my friend just went thanks dom because <laughs> um, yeah it's, it's just one of those like you feel awful after seeing it there's no triumphant moment the final shot is actually kind of devastating um And I just love how the the mise-en-scene is just filled with like Christmas decorations just randomly. There's a Christmas tree in the house and there's tinsel everywhere and yet it's the hottest weather you've ever seen. It's one of those films that does get across the the temperature really well, you can just feel the the heat of it and it just makes the whole tension of of the toxicity around it that much worse. um, But just contrasted with the Merry Christmas decorations everywhere and billboards advertising Christmas gifts. And yeah, it's probably the furthest from what people would assume a Christmas film to, to be like. And that's that's another reason why
1: I love it. It's just that contrast. It sounds absolutely brilliant. I do really want to see it. Yeah. The whole kangaroo hunting thing kind of makes me think of, like, Le Regle de Jour, where they go to the rabbit hunt um, mm. like halfway through the film, yeah. where they actually use real rabbit hunt footage.
0: Yeah, it is. that is a really kind of shocking sequence, um, especially because when they go hunting, like... Um, I don't, it's one of those miracles where, it's like, they do put a disclaimer at the end saying this this is real footage, but it wasn't. It was filmed like from elsewhere. It's just random documentary kind of footage, but the way it's put together, is it's, a, it's a kind of like a miracle of editing because it is so horrific and, and real when you see it. The shots are kind of Donald's presence, kind of like driving the car, and the sounds from the men as they're as they're hunting. And then when it cuts to the footage of kangaroos dying, it's 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 devastating. It's really affecting. So it's, if, if, if I have to put a disclaimer, if that's the kind of thing that would be upsetting, don't watch it at all because it is really, really upsetting.
1: I'll definitely have to check it out. You've completely sold me on it. I already want to
0: see it. The feel bad film of the 70s, in a decade where there's probably plenty of feel bad films, I guess, um, but this is for me probably the most kind of feel bad <laughs>
1: I do love that in the 70s, everyone, like, in the 60s, it's all sexual revolution and liberation. And, oh, look at this cool thing we can do with the camera. And then in the 70s, it's just like, I hate the world. (laughs) Like, that's just... (laughs) Everyone's miserable. (laughs) Yeah, oh, God, absolutely. Um, When you're talking about the fact that it was a lost film, like, I mean, we talked a little bit about Magnificent Ambersons earlier the full version of that's lost there's an expedition going around brazil looking for it now i think actually Mm. um
0: which that was the worry with the film archive being on fire because people thought is that is it in there and now is it gone we'll never know
1: yeah god i hope it wasn't in there um man i mean like i'm a i'm gonna be brief on this because it's the kind of thing i obsess about but i'm quite a big fan of doctor who um I, I know I, it's not cool, but I am. Um, <laughs> but like, I love 60s dogs here. I love the Patrick and William Hartnell stuff. And there's yeah. 97 episodes of that missing. Completely wow. lost. Yeah. yeah. Um, the BBC. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad they made the series, but they also erased the series in the 70s to make space in their vaults. So I mean, in 2013, they found nine complete episodes that hadn't been seen in about 50 years in um, a vault in Nigeria. Like, wow. Yeah. Like why was it there? Like <laughs> oh <and> the, <laughs> the, the BBC had like master tapes of all the episodes. Yeah. And they transferred them to film reels that they sold to commonwealth countries because they needed slots filled in their TV schedule. Right. So it's con- all all of the hopes for missing Doctor Who is like it's like Singapore, Hong Kong and Nigeria and uh, Australia and New Zealand. It's these kind of places. Yeah. The people wow, are just didn't know that. Damn. Yeah. Um and like they're there's been interviews with people who search. There's people like Phil Morris uh, and Paul Venezis who search for these, and there's interviews with them where they're like, "We know private collectors that own them, but won't give them over." Um, it's ma- it's maddening if you're a Doctor Who fan like me and you want to yeah. see them all. Luckily, they all exist on audio, so you can listen to right. them all, but you can't yeah. see them. So, like, there's audio stories I-, I obsess about, like Evil of the Daleks and stuff, but you can't watch it, and it's like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Hopefully, one day. They will be found, and like I completely agree. The cause of finding missing films is such a vital, important one. If I was a millionaire, I would be funding. um yeah. <laughs> I would be funding expeditions to find yeah. these missing films. That's what yeah, I, that's what great. I'd like to do. Yeah, yeah, completely. Man, I mean, you saw me on *Waking fright I really want to see it.
0: Yeah. Oh, watch it at Christmas. It's a good. <laughs> it's a good uh,
1: family. Uh, it's a good double bill with *Die Hard*. <laughs> Well, I, I liked what you said about it being a Christmas movie because it's sort of the, the the harsher side of Christmas. I think Die yeah. Hard is really Christmassy because it's all about trying to reunite with your family against insurmountable odds. Yeah, yeah. You just want to yeah. hang out with your family and have a nice time, but dude, there's terrorists taking over the Nakatomi Plaza. What are you going to do? Yeah. You've got glass in your feet. Your family's angry with you. It's, 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 it's perfect Christmas. Yeah. And her name is Holly. <laughs> it's a Christmas and- film, guys. Okay, how would you ever notice this in Die Hard? The incidental music, the tension music Is jingle bells You can hear people ringing sleigh bells In the scary That's the perfect It's a Christmas movie, I don't care what anyone says The man who wrote the film, Stephen E. D'Souza Says, look, it's a Christmas film It is a Christmas film That's just me getting very passionate about that. <laughs> oh, and if there's anyone listening to this who knows of any private collectors that might have uh, Doctor Who episodes or BBC films or any film, in, please tell them to get in contact with the BBC. They want them. Well, they're not even let them, like, scan them. I and mean... then No. No, that's no. Not. The thing is that's what they do when they find them yeah, they, they, yeah. They're, they're, there's a, a laboratory where they scan them they make a copy they they have the restoration team and then they release them on DVD that's what happened with the enemy of the world and the web of fear mm. in 2013 but like there are people that have them that refuse to hand them over yeah why because I, mean, I know
0: there's some people there's a great kind of thing on YouTube now where people buy like um trailer reels off eBay oh. and then they scan them on like the DSLR or whatever and then upload them onto YouTube and they look terrific yeah. I saw a, the the teaser trailer for Strange Days, which was a 35mm scan, oh, and it goodness. looked incredible. It looked... I'm yeah. like, that's, that's a really interesting side of YouTube. It's a fun rabbit hole to go down of seeing scanned 35mm trailers that people just do for fun. It's oh, a fascinating
1: part, yeah. That sounds really cool. There, there was a guy called Terry Burnett, who was a former ITV engineer, who um, collected film reels for years and years and years. And in 2011, he was talking with a guy that worked for the Doctor Who Restoration team just because they knew each other socially. And he was like, oh, by the way, you collect reels. You haven't got any Doctor Who, have you? And he's like, oh, yeah, I've got a couple of episodes. And he's like, oh, can I see them? And he's like, uh, yeah, dude, these are the only known copies in existence of these episodes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so that's how we got um, Galaxy 4, Episode 3, and Underwater Menace, Episode 2 back. Yeah. yeah. So, wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit of an obsessive about Doctor Who missing episodes. There's so there's a great YouTube video which is like an hour long, which just goes through the history of how each one was found and which where mm. where our hopes are for the remaining ninety seven. Yeah, but yeah, not not to get I'm sidetracked with really that. Yeah. But yeah, it's so it's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. um, there's a great DVD collection called Lost in Time, which is all of the just random missing episodes they found. Um, it's fantastic. Yeah. You've saw me on Waking Fright. I got to see it yes. now. For the final film on my list, you know me, you know I love British film, and I'd always try and give it a bit of representation on these lists. This is maybe, like, the least, sort of, this is the one that might lose me a bit of respect, this one, um, because it's not, like, the most cool thing to say because it's a children's film. But I don't care. Swallows and Amazons, the 1974 version, is one of the all-time great British films. I will always defend this movie. The whole thing is shot on location. There's nothing in sets they went to the Lake District and they just filmed kids having a really nice summer. Like, I don't know how people can't want to watch that film just from like that description. Um, it's set in 1929. It's an interwar years kind of film. A group of kids go with their mom uh, on holiday to the Lake District. Their dad's in the Navy. So they kind of talk about how they have this history of this naval tradition in their family, this history of boating. And they go to this lovely Lake District cottage and they want they, there's this little island in the middle of this lake that they call Wildcat Island. And they want to go and just go on it, they want to build a tent there, build a campfire, have fun. And their mom trusts them to build a, to get a boat from a nearby sort of a harbour. And they just boat across, they go there. And the film basically has no plot. They go there, they start a campfire, they light it, they have a nice evening. And then they meet another group of uh, two two people, two girls, who are on a rival boat called the Amazon. They, their main group of kids, the walkers are on the swallow. And they just kind of have like fun boating games. They They try and capture each other's boats. One of them has, like, a grouchy uncle that they try and, like, they kind of pull pranks on him, and at the end it kind of ends with this sort of, like, mock naval battle against his houseboat. It's genuinely one of the most warm, fun, entertaining movies you'll ever see. Again, like Celine and Julie Go Boating, it kind of has that lovely, slightly grainy 70s film feel, which just, it's so nostalgic, even if you haven't seen the film before, it just feels nostalgic. I love the music here it's kind of like lots of variations on sort of sailing music sea shanties was like a trend a weird random trend a while ago so if you like that give this a watch you'll probably love it um I would argue this is like a strange feminist film because all of the men in this film are useless there's the grouchy uncle there's the dad who isn't even there because he's in the navy waste of time um, and the and of the group of kids, there's John who's kind of like the leader kid, but he's kind of a bit of an emo. He sort of complains and gets a bit moody sometimes when uh, things are going wrong. So re- and there's Roger who's like the comedy relief kid, but really the kids that you you follow are Susan and um, a girl that has the rather unfortunate name of Titty, as in Titania. They When they made the remake, they changed it to Tatty, and it caused outrage in the Swallows and <laughs> fan community. This is censorship. You can't not call her Titty, but her name is Titty. The actress that plays Titty is called Sophie Neville, and she is the best actress in this movie. I don't think she really did much else in terms of acting, but she's incredible in this movie. She is. She's the goat. She is fantastic. There's a sequence where um, you're following each of the kids the night before they go boating, and each of them are so excited to go to the island. And like what's one of them's packing a bag. One of them's getting ready. One of them's like packing matches because they want to get ready to build the fire. And the very last one you see is it's Titty in bed reading Robinson Crusoe and smiling. And it's genuinely some of the best child acting you'll see in any movie. Just she looks so excited to go there. But probably because they just did go there and have a holiday while they were making the film. Probably just were very happy to go. Um, All of the stuff on the lake is gorgeous. I mean, it's like on location. you can't beat on location films. You can have really, really, really good sets. But ultimately, on location just wins every time for me. And this is one of the great films which just showing off how beautiful the Lake District is and how lovely the British countryside is. Um, all of the acting is fantastic from the kids. Um, Zanna Hamilton, Susanna Hamilton, who plays Susan Walker, she goes on to play Julia in the 80s, 1984 film, John Hurt. Um, so she's in other stuff. Uh, a lot of the other kids, I think, weren't, though. Um, this, the whole film, just it's imbued with just the spirit of summer. It's the ultimate summer movie i love it so much it's so gorgeous it's basically a wes anderson film before wes anderson was making films <laughs> all like the the amazon kids wear red hats that look like the steve Zissou hats from the life aquatic i'm convinced that's where he got it from i'm absolutely convinced yeah. that he watched this and that's where he got it from it's so fun it's so warm it's got that lovely loose kind of european feel where they ditch the plot and it's just episodic and cool um it's because it's in the Lake District, there's this bit where they go and they meet these two sort of northern men who are doing charcoal. They're, 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 I'm not sure exactly what the sort of charcoal harvest or something, they sell charcoal, they make paintings with it, they're burning charcoal, and um, there's just this lovely bit, it's it's completely unnecessary to the plot, but they just have this guy kind of explain his life and what he does with charcoal, and it's just so warm, you just, you're genuinely, you genuinely. It's just, it's just like, yeah, okay, I'll hear this guy talk about charcoal for a bit. <laughs> You're just there. You're completely there for it. The film has you in its hands and it says, this is what we're going to show you. And you, you go with it completely. The nighttime sailing stuff is really gorgeous. Um, when I was making a list of my favorite British films for Twitter, because BFI did this, this shout out, you know, what are your 10 favorite British films? I was listing them, you know, Peeping Tom, with Nail and I, all this kind of stuff. And I put Swallows and Amazons on it and Sophie Neville liked the tweet. And that is my claim to fame. No. she actually <laughs> liked the tweet so thank you Sophie Neville for liking it uh, this is a film I always just want to shout out because ignore the remake ignore that brush that to what that didn't happen look at the original the original is perfect it's like the only film I can really compare it to is The River the Jean Renoir film which trust me we'll, we'll be getting to when we get to the 50s episode um but it's it's just it's like they just captured what childhood is the fun side of childhood without the worries without the concerns just a really, really good, enjoyable, warm summer. It's the ultimate feel-good film, so it's a good counterpart to uh, Wake and Fright It's like <laughs> the antithesis of it. Watch this film, and like, if you watch this film and don't smile or laugh once, I'm convinced you're not a human. You just, you've got to see it. You've got to love it. It's such a good movie. The opening shot of the film is a graphic of a lot of circles, and you hear the sound of a train moving, and it's just this graphic of a load of circles, and then the circles start moving, and it's this perfect transition from the moving graphic of the circles into the train wheel of them going on holiday and i'm like this is a genuinely great movie they put so much attention to detail in all of these little scenes it's like a little soul bass intro <laughs> it's so cool <laughs> like I, I just i love every aspect of this film i love it i love it i love it and because i always like pointing out interesting political stuff because obviously in england there's a terrible history of racism in Swallows and Amazons the family which is this like all English sort of spiffing Enid Blyton style family was based on a Syrian family from Aleppo called the Altunians that was the basis for the walkers so in British history there's always been uh you know cross-pollination from other cultures there's always been the British cultural institutions are founded on and based from and inspired by things that aren't British and I love that I love British film I love Swallows and Amazons if you haven't seen it see it I bet you'll love it it's People talk all the time about Disney, right? And like, yes, Disney's made some good films. Okay, I'll give them that. But they're also a terrible company that is owning all of cinema and making the world of cinema an actively worse place. It's ruining chances for independent filmmakers to make genuinely interesting films that will challenge cinema, move it to a new place. And people still rave about um, like children's films made by Disney. Don't rave about those films. Watch the truly good children's films. And I think really the best children's film ever is Hallows and Amazons. Check it out. It's perfect.
0: I haven't seen it. Um, you're sorry, It seems like a really gentle film.
1: It is. Yeah. It's just, it's warm. It's just so warm. Yeah. It, it's just yeah. watching people be friends with each other. It's just, it's so it's, nice. It does, it's great to see, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like, and it's great because like, if they made a film like that now, the kids in it are all like 10 or 11, but if they made that now, there would be some dumb romantic subplot that yeah. just is so, in- and then there's none of that here. It's just, they're not, they're just having a nice time. Yeah. The ending of the film can reduce me to tears, honestly, because like, it's one of those films where as a kid, I got genuinely upset when it ended. I was just really upset. I was like, no, don't end because it's so perfect. The ending image is they've just had a really, really, really perfect day and they sail off back onto the lake and the music swells and you get the credits. And it's just like, yeah, perfect way to end it. You don't need any, yeah. you don't need them going home. You don't need any of that. The memory of the summer lives forever. Perfect movies. Nice. Sounds great. Sounds really good. I need to check it out. Is that on BFI player actually? Oh, it might be, dude. I'll have a check. Like, if it's on any streaming service, it'll be on that because it's a British. Classic. Yeah, that one. Like, <laughs> British film in the seventies. People, when people talk about it, it's all like Nick Rogue and Cam Russell, all the edgy, yeah. dark, auteur-ish stuff. And I love all that too. But you can't beat Swallows and Amazons. You can't beat it. It's not.
0: <laughs> it's not. No, Studio Canal released it. That's why. Oh, Studio Canal
1: to be fair as much as annoying as that might be um this it, because studio canal released it they did a very good restoration which looks gorgeous yeah
0: it seems like the ideal studio canal film for some reason <laughs>
1: it's it's just perfect it is just there's not mm. a, there's not a foot wrong in it like uh, honestly when i was a kid The DVD I still have of it is that and um, the Railway Children on the same disc, (laughs) and I love the (laughs) Railway Children as well. Um, Don't get me wrong, but like honestly, that disc is just perfection. That disc is just my childhood. Mm. I have an incredibly lame joke about it as well, which is that um, when me and my like me and my family, that's like the go-to like film when we me and my sister were kids that we'd always watch. And we went on holiday to the Netherlands one year. We took it with us and we watched it there. And there's a bit where um, John Turner, who is the sort of grouchy uncle captain, he gets a chest stolen from him by some robbers and the kids have to go and look for it. Um, like it, it just has that cool little Enid, Enid Blyton in Scooby-Doo, we're on, we're having a nice time, we're solving a mystery, having a good summer. And I love that vibe. Um, and like when the robbers look at the chest, it says JT on it in really big letters. And there's a Justin Timberlake song called Oh No What You Got, where the lyric is Mr. JT, what you got for me? And I said that and the whole room laughed and I felt good for a minute. (laughs) That was a good little moment. Um, Yeah. What's what's okay. This is the weirdest comparison I'm ever going to make. Swallows and Amazons is almost like the counterpart to Dress to Kill in that they're both about strange kind of outcast kids having a nice summer in very strange circumstances. (laughs) Because like the Keith Gordon character in Dress to Kill I love because like his mom is like brutally murdered at the beginning of the film but like he almost like doesn't phase him at all and it's just having kind of a cool summer he just like solves the case with his friend and afterwards they're hanging out together like i don't know it's got kind of that vibe yeah. to it <laughs> yeah i
0: would like to know the uh ongoing adventures of keith gordon and nancy allen that should have been uh, they should have turned that into a tv show I, that would have been cool they, at the end they're, they're friends now
1: absolutely and like when they're having that discussion in the cafe and, like, he's inviting her around, and she says, yeah. Did you think that they were going to have a relationship? Yeah, I, I thought that was where it was intended to go, yeah, I think. There's that fantastic dream sequence that ends it, which is just stunning. Um, yeah. But, yeah, yeah like, it, I, that film just, like, it's the weirdest feel-good film ever, Dressed to Kill, because it really does make me feel really happy watching it. Like, just, I really love yeah. their relationship. <laughs> oh, yeah. but enough about dressed to kill what a fun. um dom i'm sure you have a mammoth <laughs> list of uh recommended films honorable mentions here i do
0: yeah um it's obviously badlands favorite film ever um taxi driver you know everyone everyone knows how great taxi driver is um dirty harry gotta have a clint eastwood film on here um Dirty harry is obviously terrific and that entire series the whole day harry series which is a I always tell people it's a self-reflexive series where kind of each entry kind of alternates in a kind of what it wants to say. And I think it's terrific because, you know, most sequels just go, we're going to be bigger and, and louder and, and not always better, but Magnum Force, the sequel to Dirty Harry, very much self-reflexive on what Dirty Harry was about. And it's really quite fascinating. And is Clint Eastwood is a very thoughtful um, filmmaker and actor that people, are, I don't think, give him the credit for. Um, but I've, I've talked about Clint Eastwood enough on this podcast, but that's because he is one of the, Last great American filmmakers. Um, Coppola's entire output from this era, Godfather's, Apocalypse Now, Conversation. We all know them, they're all great. Um, the Muppet movie, I think the Muppet movie is is, is wonderful. But how did they do Kermit on the bicycle? I, I still don't know how they did that. <laughs> how did they do it? <laughs> um, a miracle, uh, A touch of Zen. I spoke about Dragon Inn as one of my favorite films um, ever. And A touch of Zen by King Who, same director, is stunning um really just one of the i said dragon in was like being on like another plane of existence and as such as then is very similar the the scene in the bamboo forest is is incredible halloween john carpenter's a slasher you, you can't beat it um the shaw brothers movies um i've got a, a handful of shaw brothers films on there um Six chamber of shaolin five deadly venoms the flying guillotine um any fans of the wu-tang clan um like me it's great watching um the Shaw Brothers martial arts movies and hearing the lines of dialogue that have been sampled by the Wu-Tang, it's, uh, it's just, it's just a lot of fun. Um, five daily Venoms when they say Toad style and I'm like, that's that's from the Mystery of Chess boxing song, <laughs> cool stuff that's probably the least cool I've made Wu-Tang sound but yeah um, uh, Carrie, another De Palma film, incredible um, Rocky, I love Rocky um, um, Day for Night, Francois Truffaut's yes. talk about filmmaking is just an absolutely delightful film I know Jean-Luc Godard, I think he hated it for some reason yeah. I think because he said like this wasn't accurate to filmmaking or he made it look too collaborative or something and I'm like okay, it's a lot of fun it's a lot of fun Shole um, um, from India is sort of like a sort of Spaghetti Wesson and it's one of the coolest things that I've ever seen, the opening kind of train sequence Um, is honestly spectacular. And when I saw it for the first time, I I hadn't been that happy watching that. I hadn't been that happy in a long time, but watching Sholei for three hours is such a joyous um, time. Uh, Days of Heaven, another Terrence Malick, beautiful. Sam Shepard, incredible. Howard and Maud, one of the funniest films I think I've ever seen. Um, Truly a oddity, but a delightful one. And The Jerk also, Steve Martin, one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Um, one of those films where I remember I watched for the first time, and I was like, um, "This is the funniest thing I have ever seen." It's, it's a it's a laugh a minute. Steve Martin is incredible in it. Um, bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia. Sam Peckinpah. I feel like I've got to say a Peckinpah film, and that might be my favorite of his. Just again another despairing film, but you, it's a film where you can you can smell the whiskey that comes out of the film. Um, breathtaking. And another giallo, What Have You Done to Solange? Another, uh, well, not another giallo, Suspiria so is not a giallo, as I was saying, but What Have You Done to Solange is a, a wonderful giallo um, set in Britain um, about a school teacher that witnesses a murder, but he then becomes a suspect because he was absent when the murder took place from school, but he can't say what he was really doing because he's having an affair with a student. So he can't confirm what he was doing, but if he doesn't say what he was doing, thinks he's the murderer so he has to with the help of his um friend um lover has to prove his innocence and find the killer and it's ah oh, anymara cohen score is one of the most beautiful things i've ever heard and to end the last picture show um peter bogdanovich one of the greatest coming-of-age films i think ever certainly a feel bad coming-of-age film um but i think that's it's perfect for those reasons because it just captures that you know being a teenager being grown up isn't always fun isn't always delightful there is heartbreak there and it's one of the captures that nostalgic element of the past so perfectly and the last picture show in question is red river which is one of my favorite films uh howard hawkes is western which is terrific but jeff bridges in that film and sybil shepherd as well breathtaking what a last picture show is is Top five Cungo's films for me. It's it's a wonderful, wonderful film. And Peter Bogdanovich, one of the the great filmmakers of this era.
1: What a fantastic list. Um, I mean, there's some films that I really want to see and some I really love. Uh, The the Shaw Brothers films is interesting because I think when they were first released on VHS in the States, they were released by the Wu-Tang Clan. Like, if you bought the tapes, you'd be like, the Wu-Tang Clan presents. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. They're releasing the Arrow Video, releasing
0: that Shaw Brothers box set. And I remember when it was announced on Twitter, people were like, it's a good day to be RZA. Because he's going to have a field day with that boxer. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, and they're all on Netflix. Um, well, they're going off Netflix. And its I didn't know they were on there until like a month ago. And they're all leaving very soon. So I'm like, "Why are they, you can't see these films anywhere else. They're not released on like DVD or Blu-ray or anything. Yeah. They're not on other streaming services. Netflix have them. Why aren't you advertising that you have these films that you can't get anywhere else? Why are you advertising? Why aren't you advertising that? But instead, you're advertising that the Shrek trilogy is now on there. That's on TV every week. Yeah. The, the people, it, it's very annoying. I, it annoys me because I know Netflix. You can do better. It's it's
1: it's one of those annoying things. But those are on there if you can catch them. They they're, they're terrific. Services like Mubi always advertise the sort of cool eclectic stuff they have, and that's what makes people like them. Yes. Netflix do the same. People will love it. You know. Yeah. There's a giant film nerd communities on Twitter that would love it. I mean, like, like my mom was scrolling through Netflix the other day and was telling me about it. And, like, they have a collection of early Victor Sjostrom silent films. And it's like, you can't find those anywhere. This is, like, Swedish cinema history. You're not advertising it. Yeah. And the algorithm doesn't
0: work. That's what I'm learning. The algorithm on Netflix doesn't work because I don't find out about these things until they disappear off Netflix. That's one of the annoying things. Like, a lot of films I've discovered on there, I only found out they were on there because they were leaving. And, you know, I got notified about it on, like, one of these sites that... Tells you when a film's leaving, and I was like, Oh my god, that's been on there the entire. They have so many Johnny Toe movies on there, and I was like, oh. I didn't know this, and now they're all disappearing, and it's infuriating because there's a wealth of great films on Netflix, and yet they don't tell anyone about it. They'd rather just advertise, you know, some random dating show. Oh, well, like Whatever. I don't know, too hot to handle. That's what it's called.
1: Man. <laughs> cool. <laughs> One of my mom's all-time great quotes is, "Netflix is fantastic if you really like Seth Rogan like if you like <laughs> seth rogan netflix is perfect dude yeah every true. seth rogan movie ever made is on there <laughs> it's always like it's always like you, you watched taxi driver and really enjoyed it would you like to watch the 2003 seth green movie without a paddle no i don't want to watch that it's one of What's the, the link they're both american like <laughs> it's, yeah it's like there's no yeah exactly Oh, they're both films. Um, yeah, <laughs> Family Guy scored one of its rare hits with a joke on one an episode I watched years ago, where it's like Netflix, where the, for us the golden year of filmmaking was two thousand and three. <laughs> 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 That's a good joke. I'll give I'll give Family Guy That's a good that. one. It's funny. I've got like thirty five honorable mentions, so I'm just gonna have to speed nice. through them. Nice. Taxi Driver, we all know it, we all love it. Great movie. Yeah. Carrie, I lo- as you said. Fantastic. Sissy Spacek. Mm, Unbelievable. John Schlesinger's movie Yanks with Richard Gere. Very underrated film about Americans stationed in Yorkshire um, waiting for D-Day. Great little movie. Really underrated. Vanessa Redgrave. Fantastic in that film. Um, Chantal Lackerman's film, John Dielman. You'll never see anything else quite like it. Uh, It was often called the first masterpiece of the feminine in cinema. Um, It's a tough watch, but it's a worthwhile one. The Go-Between, Joseph Losey's best film, in my opinion. Uh, fantastic Julie Christie performance. Brilliant evocation of a hot summer in Britain. And you know what? Filmed in Norfolk. Get in. <laughs> nice. Kelly's Heroes, really underrated um, Clint Eastwood movie. Very fun. Donald Sutherland plays, like I think in the DVD box, calls him World War II's only hippie. <laughs> and the theme song slaps. Oh my God, Burning Bridges. Banger of a the theme song. It's a tune like when that starts <laughs> playing over the beginning i'm like what am i watching like i feel like tarantino based his entire career on kelly's heroes and not yeah yeah i mean yeah, i can see that oh uh, but anyway yeah uh, donald sutherland's introduction in that where he's a world war ii soldier everyone's terrified about the push into uh into france where they have to fight the nazis donald sutherland's in bed with a girl and he just stumbles out of bed and he's like yeah man and all his crew are drinking wine and smoking weed it's like what is this what is this film um you don't see them smoking weed, but they definitely are. Zabrisky no. Point, Antonioni, really underrated Antonioni film. The ending sequence of that is a slow motion explosion of a house set to be careful with that axe, Eugene, by Pink Floyd. And it's one of the most stunning things you will see in any movie. It's all worth it for that shot. Um, it's like all of the con- all of the consumer materialist stuff being detonated. You see like a loaf of wonder bread just like burst open as the the uh the screaming kicks in. It Amazing. Uh Day for Night I've got as well. Jacqueline Bassett in that film is one of the most gorgeous human beings ever. Um I found out this morning the not the English novelist Graham Green has a cameo in it. Random. Um <laughs> Peter Bogdanovich's movie Paper Moon, I love. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Taste O'Neill again. Um, like uh, I think the only child performance that can really rival that is like Jean-Pierre Leo in 400 blows. Mm. But she was like eight in that film. She's incredible. <laughs> um <laughs> clute by alan pecula what a movie the sequence where the killer is on the roof and donald Sutherland can hear him shockingly good and James Fonda's is fantastic in it eric idol's movie the ruttles all you need is cash really really funny Beatles parody <laughs> um alien what a film
0: yeah
1: yeah fantastic yeah. ridley scott movie jaws can't go without mentioning no. jaws
0: no.
1: Uh, genuinely, maybe the most terrifying experience I've ever had with a film was the first time I watched the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, yeah, yeah. The
0: sequence,
1: terrifying. That, oh, terrifying! The sequence in that with Marilyn Burns, where she, her eyes are just twitching and convulsing when she's at the family dinner table. Stunning movie. Um, Werner Herzog's best film, *Aguirre: Wrath of God*. Incredible yeah. movie.
0: Yeah.
1: Chinatown, Plansky sucks. Hate him, but great movie. Yeah. yeah french connection which i mentioned badlands i rewatched that the other night my god what a movie yeah (laughs) bruce de mcleod total pot movie but such a good one shirley duval's first film she was in that film because she tried to sell robert altman's second unit director paintings on set and they were like this girl is bizarre put her in the film (laughs) <laughs> um and she is beyond gorgeous in that movie um my letterboxed uh avatar at the moment is a shot of her in that film with with the eyelashes incredible lover and the ending to that movie is literally just the ending to eight and a half it just like does it again <laughs> um but in like dallas or wherever it's set so great uh autumn sonata really 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 moving bergman film um that's my favorite probably late period bergman movie uh, apart from fanny and alexander fantastic performances there from Liv Allman and ingrid bergman great movie deliverance john borman yeah. whoa yeah you have not seen something as visceral and shocking as this before trust me you know if you haven't seen it the the actual scene in question which i'm sure everyone knows what i'm talking about is handled very well i was worried that it would be yeah. too exploitative or handled it's handled very well and um john dickey's performance in that i can't remember if his name is james dickey or john dickey the man who wrote the book plays a suspicious cop at the end and that is a stunning performance from a non-actor great great movie uh one flew over the cuckoo's nest incredible film so moving Uh, that film will have me tear up every time i watch it especially the ending kem russell's movie the devils my god what a film to release yeah. Jesus Christ. You have not seen like as visceral and shocking violence like this in a movie in a long, long time, but it's handled very and well.
0: And they're still refusing to release like the like director's cut, which why? Just release it.
1: Warner Brothers, honestly, like the fact that they won't release that director's cut. It would get such a big audience. Everyone would watch it. Everyone would love it. People are clamoring for it. And it looks like Warner Brothers have put the nuns from The Devils in that new Space Jam film they've done. Yeah,
0: yeah. Like, I saw
1: that. I was like, what are you doing? Because <laughs> the kids love Ken Russell's The Devil. <laughs> they should. They should love yeah. it. The sequence in that film where the King of France is shooting those people dressed as birds is just like, what, what am I watching? And it's Oliver Reed's best performance too. It's a great, great movie. Ken Russell's a British maverick. Love him. Is his best film. A Clockwork Orange. Needless to say more. It's great. Nashville. Fantastic. Yep. Tarkovsky's films, Mirror and Stalker. My God. Yeah. yeah. Stalker Again. is something else. Damn. Tarkovsky was a singular talent and those two are, in my opinion, his best movies. I can hardly distinguish between them. I love them so much. All I will say is the printing press memory flashback in Mirror where you follow the mother running into the printing press factory. Yeah. That cinema from another planet. It's its wordless perfection. I cannot tell you how much that scene means to me. thats If I was doing a list of my top 10 favorite scenes ever, that would be like number four or something. It's perfect. Mm-hmm. The Godfather, come on. Obviously, yeah. Three women I've already talked about. Godfather 2. The Deer Hunter. Oh my God, The Deer Hunter. The Russian roulette sequence is worth the hype. Michael Cimino was a genius and he was treated terribly by people that should have known better. The Passenger. What a film. Antonioni's movie, The Passenger, great Nicholson performance, wonderful sort of globe-trotting travelogue movie. Antonioni still had it in the seventies. That's proof. And then just the the two that were on my all-time favorites list, Apocalypse Now and Sorcerer. What a decade the seventies was. Incredible. Yeah. Well, there you go. Maybe the last good decade, arguably, or last great decade, maybe. Yeah, like when we were doing the '80s episode, I kept realizing there are lots of great '80s movies, yeah. but they're not the films people think of as '80s movies. Yeah,
0: yeah. '80s is like I feel like the pop culture of the '80s is very dis- different from like the great movies from the '80s that aren't brought up.
1: Yeah, as much Whereas as I the love... '70s pop
0: culture is the great movies that everyone knows and loves.
1: Yeah, like Godfather and stuff. Like, yeah. As much as I love something like Ferris Bueller, it's not Godfather two. Not going to argue. <laughs> um, man i mean like watch when I, I mean when i discovered mishima like that might be my favorite film now from you know from the 80s like that's just yeah. utter utter life-changing movie oh well oh, dom i've really enjoyed talking with you enjoyed being here thank you for having me it's always a pleasure like, i'd really look forward to these episodes because i know you're going to bring up some really interesting films and i know it's going to be a great conversation thank you so thank much you. for coming yeah, thank you for having me Yeah. Absolutely. Would you like to recommend any of your social media, Letterboxd, anything like this?
0: Uh, yeah, Letterboxd, uh, Dingo of Ginger, as always. Um, I watched the, the Jarhead straight to DVD sequels the past week, so if you want to see what I thought of them, check <laughs> check Letterboxd. Um Spoiler alert, they weren't good. Um, <laughs> I do not even like the first one, to be honest. I don't know why I bothered. Um, and my uh, Twitter is dumb of Ginger. Let's see my uh, hot takes um, on the fly and just random thoughts and Twitter's always got something to annoy me, so if you want to see me air my, my
1: grievances, check me on Twitter at Dom of Ginger, yep. Brilliant. Um, well, obviously Dom is the deputy editor of the four, of the Borre Film section, I'm the editor of it, so please follow uh, at Boar Film <laughs> on Twitter uh, to see all of the updates, all of the updates on podcasting, all of the updates on articles that we've posted please do follow at ball film. Uh, you can follow me as well. Frank Evans on Twitter. I'm, I rarely tweet. I basically just retweet whenever someone points out something terrible the Tories have done. Um, uh, because that needs to be known about. Um, and you can follow me on letterboxd. Um, just search Frank Evans. I recently watched Jack Clayton's movie, the innocence, and it changed my entire view of what cinema can be. <laughs> yeah. So check that Good out.
0: Fun fact, about that, uh, Debra Kerr, who's terrific.
1: I love um, Deborah Kerr where
0: I am um, oh you are like this when I with the house I grew up in I lived next door to her brother what which is insane because we just lived in a house in Birmingham and I'm like how is Deborah Kerr's brother living next door to her that's that's insane to me but yeah that's a that's a fun, which I didn't know until like I was obviously older because you know four-year-old me didn't really care about that sort of
1: thing but yeah when I learned that I was like that's incredible yeah that's amazing yeah um well like Trust me, when we get to the '60s, when we get to the '40s, particularly all the Powell and Pressburger stuff, yeah, that's that's when the car worship is coming in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you so much to, uh, for listening to this episode of the ball film Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I really enjoy doing these episodes. um So yeah, if if you've enjoyed hearing us talk about films, add them to your letterbox watch list or wherever it may be, and please do tune in next time. The next episode of the show should be an episode about Terence Malick with Sam. So please tune in. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and have a good summer. Goodbye.